Canada has qualified for Rugby World Cup 2019. The November test window has come to a close. And today, we're building pathways from university to the pros. The ARN Podcast, Episode 4. Here we go. So I said last week that we'd have a poll to kind of decide on a name for this thing, but we decided to put that off uh, slightly. We're going to be taking a bit of a break to kind of get ready for the the coming storm that is 2019. So there might be, you know, one or one more episode on the way, and then we'll fire it up again in the first week of January. Uh, we'll get some guests lined up in advance so we can get to a more consistent schedule. Uh, the test window is now behind us. Uruguay with an historic win over Romania, 27-20. A crazy end to that game. If you can find the last couple minutes online, do check that out. Uh, Argentina came up short against Scotland. Not the most exciting game ever played. And the Pumas, I don't think, will be overly satisfied with that result. Certainly could have got a win. Uh, Brazil was in Argentina to play a couple provincial sides over the past few days. They lost a very close games to Tucumán and Salta. Maybe a little disappointing, but some younger guys got experience in new positions, so certainly a worthwhile uh, exercise for them. And the winning streak is over for the Eagles. They lost to Ireland in Dublin. Not really uh, a surprise to be expected, but they played well, hung in for about 50 minutes. Uh, Here's Ireland coach Joe Schmidt's reaction to the game. There's certainly some lads who know they've been in a game, but I felt when we got the game to a certain tempo, it did allow us to, to find a bit of space and, um, you know, we didn't always capitalise on it, which was frustrating, particularly in the first half. But then the second half, I, I, I thought we capitalised on a, on a few kind of open running opportunities and, um, and that allowed us to accumulate what we did on the scoreboard. We were really conscious that they would be tough going. You know, you don't beat Scotland and, and not have something. Uh, in the in the locker, and you don't beat Samoa and not have something in the locker. So we knew it was going to be tough. Irish fans are feeling a bit down this week after Joe announced that he would be stepping away from rugby to spend more time with his family. Uh, Andy Farrell taking over the head coach role after the World Cup. A lot of people thought Schmidt would jump to the All Blacks, but it seems like that's not going to happen now. So maybe a few New Zealanders sharing the Irish grief right now. A uh, quick mention to Fiji, who upset France in Paris no less. Uh, I thought they were outstanding, and the uh, the TMO was not. Two tries called back. The first, in my opinion, a dreadful call. A very debatable offside against Fiji. A wonderful try scored. The referee's initial reaction was play on, and the TMO steps in with something so pedantic. It was very, very frustrating. You know, match officials all over the world were left scratching their heads after some of the calls we've seen over the past three weeks. You know, hopefully they can talk about this ahead of the World Cup, get this sorted out. Uh, I digress a bit. Uh, Canada defeated Hong Kong. Book your flights, grab your tickets if you can get any. Canada are headed to Rugby World Cup 2019 in Japan. Not the uh, not the best performance of the first half. Really, you know, left it a bit stressful. A lot of possession territory given to Hong Kong, but they picked it up in the second half, got the job done. So congratulations to them. Uh, a, a richly deserved reward and, and very relieving one. And I guess that extra 20 bucks that Rugby Canada roped in from everyone and their dog paid off in the end. Uh, here's Phil Mack. 
Oh, I just over the moon, you know, like coming into this, we knew it was going to be tough and we knew, um, you know, each game was going to be a different test, but you know, all the support from home and the boys just digging in and getting all the work done this, this tour uh, in the last year building up to this is awesome. And, um, you know, a super scrappy game, but, um, you know, I'm just so happy to get away with the win. Honestly, we were just wanted to get here and we wanted to play um, straight away after that last game. Once our review was done, um, we just wanted to get into this World Cup and, you know, we had a goal in mind. Um, credit to the coaching staff, you know, they came in and we were in a pretty bad spot uh, once Kingsley took over and, um, you know, he's really upskilled us all and he's put us in a position now where we get to go to a World Cup. Um, so that, that goal is done, now the hard work really starts and we got to go to the World Cup and perform. And on the other side of things, you have to feel a bit bad for both Hong Kong and Germany who really put up quite a fight in the repechage competition. I thought both sides were, were very competitive. Certainly there are compelling arguments for a 24-team World Cup, or certainly some kind of expansion. Uh, here's Hong Kong captain James Cunningham. Oh, I'm just a bit frustrated, to be honest with you. You know, We had the opportunities once again, just like the Germany game, and we just didn't, didn't take our opportunities, and uh, Canada did, you know. It's... It's a bit disappointing now. Um, we, we, we didn't stick to you know, our game plan, which we went out with. Uh, and I think we suffered because of that, which is really disappointing. Uh, we lost little battles on the field, and uh, you know, that's, that's, that's why I think we uh, didn't get the win. So there's a lot to talk about, and let's start by bringing in our very own Paul Tate, joining us now from some insane asylum down in Brazil. All right, Paul, we'll start where we finished last week. Uh, you called it. Canada comfortable winners over Hong Kong to earn their spot at Rugby World Cup 2019. So they go into Pool B. Uh, we're not really going to worry about New Zealand uh, or South Africa. If we decide that Canada's goal is to come third in the pool, and I think we came to that conclusion last week, it effectively becomes a three-team uh, mini competition within the pool. Uh, Namibia, we've clearly defined as a winnable game although they did get a win over Portugal on the weekend so Canada plays Namibia last so that really means the key game comes first for Canada when they play Italy now we, d we discussed it last week do you still think that Canada can beat the Azuri next year I do I do I, I watched all of Italy's matches this month and uh, they are not looking good are they um, they have a few injured names but realistically they, they, they should be not losing by over 60 points against the All Blacks. Uh, they, Australia were awful, and Italy were even worse. Georgia were off their game, so uh, that helped Italy. Uh, but, I mean, that was a genuine, evenly fought match. So, uh, you know, I would compare the Georgia-Italy match uh, to something along the lines in terms of competitiveness to something like a, a Fiji versus Japan kind of match, very even contest. So that's great news for Canadian, Canadian rugby. I, I think that Canada got, got through their uh, World Cup repertoire very well. I was surprised with uh, some of the selections. But, I mean, the coach can only be credited for, for the results. Tremendous effort. Uh, definitely can beat the, the uh, Italians. But it's going to involve a tremendous effort, of course. Uh, they're going to have to leave. No, no stone unturned for that one. I think that... Uh, Canada has probably the back row advantage over the Italians. Pretty even in terms of some of the finishers, but uh, I'd say DTH is the best finisher of Canada or Italy. And uh, let's see how they go in, in getting the midfield because I think Italy, their big weapon move with their midfield against Canadians. So hopefully Canada is able to address that. So for 
America's teams now into the World Cup. Obviously, this is great for the Americas. Uh, you know, we've touched on the possibility of extending the World Cup. Obviously, I think everybody's, you know, most people anyways, on the, on the Tier 2 side of things are, are uh, very pro uh, expansion to 24 teams and so on. But, you know, who's the next team from the Americas that will make that jump to become a World Cup team? Is it Brazil or Chile? Are they getting closer to, to making that jump? Yeah, I, I think they both they both are realistically now. Brazil is in a favored position. Uh, Brazil probably uh, even match for Kenya, possibly slightly better. So that that's a pretty good indication that they have the means. Because if we're going to go to twenty four, what are we going to do? Who, who are gonna, the teams going to be? You know, World Rugby uh, are pretty clear. They're, they're not on record in saying this, but they're pretty clear that. Uh, it doesn't matter about the results that Africa teams get outside of South Africa, of course, in the World Cup. They're going to get their spot regardless for the next tournament. And so uh, it's really hard to actually identify the best way of going about it because I could honestly name 24 teams who could be at the World Cup in Japan next year. Uh, let's imagine Spain or Romania had, uh, had the problems they had, then, then we wouldn't be naming four additional sides. We're naming just two of them. So it's a bit hard because Hong Kong and Germany were both very good against Canada and, and Kenya. So uh, it's very exciting times, for, I think, for, for Tier 2 and, and, and beyond. You know, in speaking to Josh Reeves uh, in one of our earlier shows, you know, he mentioned that Brazil was really gunning for, you know, to, to get another Canada scalp in the, in the ARC. So I'm interested, actually, to see, you know, maybe the next World cup cycle if they can even push uruguay and canada for for a spot um but we'll, we'll jump away from that for just a second uh the top team from the americas obviously right now the u.s eagles they lost to ireland 57 to 14 a reasonably close game until uh, big joe taffetae went off early in the second half uh, ireland were probably always going to win that is the scoreline at all disappointing or is it a fair indication of, of where the usa stands right now do you think I don't think it's disappointing at all. Uh, let's compare this match to a comparative fixture. And to do that, I would go back to Rugby World Cup 2015, the game against uh, South Africa in London, and the uh, United States couldn't score a try in the match. They were held pointless, in fact, uh, against Ireland in comparison. They had two tries early on, and realistically, at, at halftime, they were, they were looking pretty good. 10 points behind. Uh, obviously, there's a gulf between the teams. There's no denying that. But it's, it's utterly clear to me how much they have progressed. And uh, for that match in particular against South Africa, just finding the players for the game and because you had Japan a few days later and it was a, a choice of sacrificing one or the other. And uh, they came through it in the end much better against Ireland than was the case from the World Cup because against South Africa, they, they were not good at all. Uh, defensively weak and uh, South Africa were just able to keep them at bay throughout the match. Ireland though, I mean look look at the the, tr the try that uh, Big Joe got against Ireland. I mean that that's tremendous. They got a penalty try as well. So yeah, I think it was a great effort. And uh, we'll talk more in detail about the ARC obviously as it comes closer, but uh, you know the USA has now won it twice in a row, we, we have to assume that they won't be with, you know, maybe some of the stars like Big Joe and McGinty and Lasique. Uh, what's your early assessment? Do they do they have the depth to, to win it again in, in 2019? I think they do, yes. I, I think uh, it's going to be a pretty, 
pretty open this, this time around because you're going to have, I, I assume you're going to have release issues even with major league rugby players and Uruguayans, for example, they're on record as being affected. Uh, the, the, the guys who have joined the league are, are not going to be playing uh, all of the matches, maybe only one or two, in fact. Um, so, I mean, looking at it from this perspective, that's pretty good news for Chile and for Brazil because they are uh, going to have few players from abroad involved for them. And, that, and so that, that's going to probably level out the, the playing field quite a bit, I would suggest. But I think the United States do have the means of going into this tournament and winning it. I would put them as favorites because I, I also think that the Argentina 15 are going to be diluted yet again. I think that... 2018 was pretty clear that the the player management issues need to be sorted out better. The World Cup's coming up now, so you're going to have more Super Rugby opportunities for Argentina 15 players than was the case in, in this year and previous editions of the tournament. So uh, I would still suggest the United States are, are favorites, but uh, a lot can happen. It's going to be good to watch. Of course, on the weekend, we saw Uruguay against Romania, the last gasp win for Los Terros. Uh, Augustine Ormachia coming on as a replacement, getting a, the intercept try, the second intercept try in the match. Andres Villaseca getting one earlier in the game. Was this a lucky win, do you think? You know, what do you make of, of their performance in that one? Fortune favors the brave, as they say. It definitely applies to Uruguay in this match. But also, uh, stupidity is a, an important Part of rugby too. Uh, we saw France blow a match against South Africa because of that uh, in November. Romania. I mean, what was it? Two or three minutes there at the end with with the ball, and then they they carelessly, you know, threw it, and along comes Augustino Ricci and gets the pass. So, yeah. I mean, you, you can only you can only blame both uh, Romania for for doing that, but also credit Uruguay for for getting it the win. I mean. They, they came out of nowhere. And, I mean, even a draw, that a draw against Romania, even though Romania have their own issues and they're not necessarily at full strength. But getting that result was tremendous. Uh, it's the first time Uruguay's beaten them. A draw was only going to be the second draw between the teams that never came away with anything other than a loss in Romania. So, tremendous. Uh, I thought uh, Andre, Andres Villaseco, his intercept was was for me, the, the talking point, because how on earth is this guy able to keep doing this? I mean, he got multiple intercepts against Canada to, to get the World Cup uh, qualifying spot. He's got intercepts, uh, South America, Six Nations, Tournament 2. I mean, this is just phenomenal. I can't think of another player with, with this ability. He obviously, obviously, he can read the play really, really well, and I think teams are going to have to keep keep an eye on this for the, for the World Cup and, and so forth. Yeah, I thought he was probably Uruguay's strongest player over their uh, November uh, campaign. Uh, you know, looking at them now, as you say, they're going to lose some of those guys like Vilaseca, like Echeverria and Rodrigo Silva, etc. Some of these senior guys, they won't have them for the entire ARC. So they have an opportunity to make, you know, to, to take a look at some other players. What are some deficiencies, do you think, or do you see with them right now where they can maybe take some chances with selection and, and try and add something to their team before the World Cup? We, we pretty much know who the guys are who are going to be uh, playing in, against Fiji, Georgia, the, the two games for Uruguay at the World Cup. So what we've got to realistically do is identify who, who are the other guys going to be, who are the support players who can come along. So 
I mean, I'll go back to the Uruguay 15 results uh, this year and, and get a get a pretty good idea from that based on who the guys are going to be, uh, I think, to look out for in the America's Rugby Championship. So I, maybe it's a bit too early to name anybody. Uh, but, I mean, having said that, there there are some guys, obviously, who are standouts of, ahead of the rest, like Fly Half on the rest of Leon, I would, I would name as a guy that should be a, a prominent in the America's Rugby Championship, maybe Federico Favro. Where are you going to play him? Is he going to be winger? Is he going to be fullback? Very good in either position. So those, those two are probably the backs I would I would uh, nominate. Uh, Leandro Segredo as a flanker. Uh, also, what are Uruguay going to do uh, in terms of scrum half? They're going to take three or only two? What's their policy? So... If you're going to take three, I think Tomas Inciarte is the name I would throw in the, in the hat to, to, to look out for, too. Yeah, I'm particularly interested in, in Favaro on the, on the wing. I think uh, maybe they could use a little bit more explosive speed, and certainly he's a very creative player out there. I really enjoy watching him play. Uh, Brazil just finished a little two-match tour of Argentina. They played the provincial sides, Tucumán and Salta. They lost both of them, 34-31 uh, to Tucumán. And just uh, yesterday, last night, uh, they lost to Salta, 30-29. Um, is it disappointing to see them losing to these provincial sides after, you know, compete, you know, relatively competing against the, the Maori All Blacks? Oh, definitely. I mean, you, you go to win, and uh, Brazil have got results this year last year that, that they've been tremendous uh, hugely impressive in america's rugby championship getting a win over belgium has, has just been nothing short of extraordinary from them so i mean losing to argentine provinces yeah it's definitely disappointing but i mean let's be realistic let's look at brazil now and brazil from the past getting results losing within a score like they have against tucuman and salta that is not you know anything to be concerned about in fact compared to past sides this brazilian side is obviously much better it tells you also that when they go back maybe in a year maybe in two years you'd probably give them the favorites tag so them you know they're they're obviously not playing in the world cup looking ahead at the arc do you think they pick a, a, some some younger guys for that are they going to kind of expand their horizon a bit for the arc or are they just kind of try and keep the status quo and, uh, and and try and get some results now keep the status quo definitely. I think that's what they'll be trying to do. Interesting to see who's going to be the ten. I think Reeves will be unavailable most likely. Maybe get one or two matches, but they're going to have to look there. Do they play Mose Stoop there? What do they do? There was somebody new, so that's going to be interesting. But generally, I expect the team to be basically basically yeah, similar to what we've seen throughout this year. Uh, I mean, you've probably, you can probably look at ten or, or so names who have been holding down our positions and the other guys have <clears throat> have played most but not all of the matches uh you got a really settled side and uh they're going to be a, a hard team to beat for everybody and of course in the weekend we saw argentina wrap up their the test contingent of their tour of course they got uh, one game left against the barbarians coming up but looking at that game against scotland um you know maybe not ideal conditions but it wasn't really terrible uh they lose by five points there wasn't really a, a lot in their performance looking at it from my perspective they really struggled to get something going offensively is this pretty much the same thing um that, that we've seen throughout did, did we did we learn anything new from that performance against scotland oh we, we learned that goal kicking is vital <laughs> i mean you can't be listed as one of the top three in the world by a number of people and be kicking at 50 percent against scotland that's just can't do that 
So Nico Sanchez was disappointing. Uh, but I mean, Buffelli almost also missed a, a regulation kick for him. It was long distance, but it's the same kicks he's been getting over in rugby championship, for instance. Uh, I mean, Argentina were without, let's see, Marcus Crema not there. So Rodrigo Bruni got a start. I think he did well. And that was realistically the first test match under uh, Ledesma to have a back row, which is a back row, uh, not a, a lock playing out of position. So that that was interesting. It's gonna, you know, it gives them more bonuses because I, I look at who who they could call in to boost the World Cup roster, and there's only uh, Facundo Issa for either second row or uh, Flanca, who has not played under Ledesma already this year. The other guys are obviously Mariano Galas. I can't get anybody else. So you're going to be talking about Jaguars only, plus those two names for World Cup selection. So he did well in this match. Uh, I also thought that uh, the scrum was better overall. Uh, the defense was pretty, pretty much uh, was tremendous, tremendously uh, in, in comparison to how they did against France. But uh, compared to Ireland, it was pretty much the same as that. I, I, I thought the trial was uh, unfortunate. It was a lapse. Uh, shouldn't shouldn't real, realistically have happened. But uh, well done to Scotland for spotting it as they did. But I think let's compare this match to, to the previous one, which was June. Horkad's final match and yeah I mean how poor were Argentina on that day just absolutely shocking and uh, they got a, a loss by five points against Scotland this weekend I mean uh, goal kicking on target they would have won the match uh, so I mean let's let's not be so harsh on on how they did in is in 10 months the Scotland team we saw this month in November is basically what we're going to see in the World Cup is realistically hard to identify additional names that can boost it Argentina is different in that in that regard. So looking ahead this weekend, the barbarians to wrap things up. But you know, this all of a sudden, as you, as you mentioned, the Jaguares, this weekend's match takes on kind of a different complexion than what we're we're used to seeing with the barbarians. Rassi Erasmus has picked thirteen of his Springbok players. He's obviously having a look at them. But and on the other side, Argentina are basically going to be using this match to test fringe players like uh, Joaquin Diaz Bonilla at number 10, you know, looking for a spot on the Aguares and also looking ahead to the World Cup. So uh, is that what we're expecting to see? Kind of almost a trial match this weekend? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, Ledesma says he's not going to influence Aguares in any way. He's saying it's over to Casada to to do that as he wishes, to play who he wishes and so forth. But I don't, I don't buy into that so much because we've got a World Cup coming up. This is the final match of the year. Uh, they, they have a lot of things to, to, to look over because realistically, Ledesma, in his own mind, he knows who he's going to be taking to the World Cup already. He's just having to test out specific players in specific positions because Argentina is going to have a challenging pull to get through. Realistically, in the World Cup, he's going to be playing uh, reserves against Tonga. I mean... To be able to do that, you've got to going to have to have a very good lineup. I mean, uh, I, I envision this, this team that we're going to see is going to be roughly ten changes from what we had against Scotland. It, it's not the best side, uh, of course, but this is a, a lineup very much to look forward to the World Cup. But also, like you mentioned, Super Rugby. How are they going to manage Super Rugby next year? I mean, you had Agustin Carevi playing starting Super Rugby all season, starting all the test matches. I mean, at the same time as that, we're, we're getting teams from England uh, starting to 
decrease the number of internationals and club matches each player plays. And, and they're trying to get the magic number. They're trying to get it towards 25. I mean, Ireland is already there. New Zealand is already there. So, I mean, is Argentina going to look at that way too? Because there's no doubt about it. The players this year, uh, players against Scotland, for instance, were the same guys who have been there all year. Uh, I, would, I would put the Barbarians as favourites to win it, definitely. Juan Manuel Leguizamon starting for the Barbarians at number eight. Uh, you know, it sounds like he's considering or very close to retirement. Is this the last time we're going to be seeing him on the international stage? International stage, I think it is. I don't think we'll see him again, but I do think he'll be there play, uh, playing for Jaguares, and that's going to be a combination of the needs of the team and uh, and just having general cover because, like I say, I do not envision we're going to see the same players playing all season again. You, you've got him, you've got Senatore, who, who was dropped, you've got Gonzalez Iglesias, who was dropped. I mean, these guys were dropped, uh, but they're going to be going to be needed for, for Super Rugby. You cannot realistically get through the 16 matches plus potential playoffs, then go to the international stage. I mean, these guys are going to be vital in that respect. I wouldn't say that they're not going to be recalled for the World Cup. If there's an injury, you never know. And last thing before we call us, the uh, World Rugby Awards were this past weekend in Monte Carlo. Uh, you know, I'm never a, a huge fan of award kind of banquet things, but I always figure if you're going to do them, you might as well do them right. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting when they nominate uh, players of the year, they always they, they have the nominations. They get they release like a list of three or four players, whatever, but, what, but they don't really do it for teams. And I kind of feel like, they let down the Eagles a little bit by not calling them, a, you know, a nominee for Team of the Year. Even though everybody knew Ireland was going to win, they, you know, they didn't even give really a mention at all to the Eagles, which I thought was disappointing. And I think the other disappointing thing for me, and I think pretty much unanimous here, is that uh, Bautista Delgui, another one, completely overlooked for Breakthrough Player of the Year. I mean, is this a, a bit of a snub for the Americas at this, uh, you know, obviously Perry, Perry Baker winning, but I think that's, you know, looking at his selection, almost a popularity thing. But, you know, are, are otherwise, are, are the Americas getting a snub here from World Rugby? I definitely, Yes. Delegate not nominated, just absolute nonsense. They nominated Jordan Lammer from, from Ireland. We all know how good the guy is. Anyone who's watched knows. But have we seen him for Ireland being tremendous prior to his nomination? Have we? How many tries did he score? Yes, nil, zero. So his nomination just doesn't make sense because Ireland uh, basically seemed to have benefited from, from being as good as they are this year and World Rugby thinking, hmm, maybe we need an Irish player to be nominated for the award. I mean, I just don't see how how you can nominate a player such as that when he doesn't have a try or a start for prior to nomination. And we're talking about uh, rugby, world rugby, uh, recognizing the finest performances. When you have rookie players scoring four or more tries against the best op- op- opposition in the world and they don't get nominated, that's insane. So that's, that's I would suggest, a very subjective system. Uh, it's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. We made it through the uh, November tests somehow. One last weekend to enjoy with the uh, just the Barbarians match. Uh, looking back over it all, uh, thoughts? Are you, are you pleased with, with how it all went? Uh, for the United States, very much. Uh, for Uruguay, I would add I'm also very happy, apart from the Fiji match. But we did learn, based on Fiji-France, <laughs> among other things, that this is not a tier two side, it's a tier one side. The Fiji men are massive. 
And uh, it's good that the result came now and not at the World Cup because now Uruguay are going to have the time to, to sort it out. So that's good for them. Argentina, no wins, but let's not look too much into that because they were up against really well-prepared sides and they've uh, got the same players playing too tired and so forth. So with Argentina, it's not so concerned as I would be uh, had this been a, a year ago. In terms of Canada, now that's where I'm really happy. I mean, mission accomplished. And um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to what they can get done in the immediate future in the America's Rugby Championship. I think hopefully we're going to see Canada rising in the rankings again. I mean, realistically, where do you think that they're ranked compared to the world's top 20? They're, they're probably right around there. That's probably fairly accurate. Uh, you know, at their best, maybe a little bit higher. But, uh, you know, we haven't really seen them at their best aside from maybe that one game against Germany. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say yeah. that's probably about accurate. I mean, I, I thought Canada this month, they were better than Tonga this month. So, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll, I would put put Canada or maybe Uruguay level, maybe slightly above them, to be honest. Yeah, it's an interesting debate. And uh, I guess we're going to find out soon enough, certainly next year, 2019, Japan. Canada will have their, their day in the sun, their opportunity to beat Italy to earn that qualification spot. Wouldn't that be be something, you know, looking at uh, USA, their pool, how difficult that is as well. So it looks yes. like it's going to be an exciting year for rugby. And, uh, yeah, we're almost there. We're just a month away from 2019 now. Bring it on. It's going to be awesome. Bring it on, indeed. It's going to be complete chaos. The ARC, Major League Rugby, uh, the World 7 Series, all on the go. Uh, you can find Paul, by the way, on Twitter, at Argentina underscore 2027. Speaking of the seven series, both the men's and women's circuits are in Dubai this weekend. Personally, I'd like to see more of that where everyone is in the same place. At the, at the very least, we need to see the women's circuit expanded to match the men on 10, uh, 10 tournaments throughout the season. Uh, Canada's women's 15s team wrapped up their four-match tour this week. Uh, both tough matches. Uh, they beat Wales on Saturday. It was very close until the final quarter when they just pulled away at the end. And then they played Scotland on Tuesday, and it was the first time they've played them since the 2010 World Cup. Uh, lots of new players getting a run out there. Canada were heavy favorites, but the Scots came very close to upsetting them, or at least tying them. Uh, just a couple mistakes in the first half. Scotland scored two tries and then got a bit of belief and made for a really nervous ending in that one. Scotland just missing a penalty that would have tied the game really from right in front of the stick. So Canada getting maybe a little bit lucky there. Uh, so Canada held off in the end. Here's Captain Laura Russell. Um, it was a great game against Scotland today. We battled hard and we knew we were going to get a fight and that's what we were in. But uh, we opened it up in a few places and there's just some areas we need to work on to finish better. Our new players were great. They really they picked up and they did everything they could to learn and grow with the program and they fit in like a glove and we're really excited for what the future has to bring in Canada. I'm looking forward to where we're going to go. I mean, we've got a young and talented and we have a lot of vets back and it's going to be an exciting road. In the next couple of years, we have lots of things coming up and this is just a starting point for us. So we've got, we've got a good road ahead of us. And I'm interested to see what they have ahead of them as well. Nothing has been confirmed yet, but World Rugby is apparently looking to give 
give them a regular test schedule like the men have right now. So hopefully that is the case. And also over this past weekend, the UBC Thunderbirds emerged victorious from the Canadian University Men's Championship. Back-to-back titles for the T-Birds. You know, we're we're starting to see the, the fruits of some of the collegiate programs in the USA. Some players uh, jumping from college rugby up to major league rugby. Uh, hopefully that uh, is going to be the case now in Canada now that we have a team. Uh, here to talk about the win and about that ladder is someone uniquely qualified to do so. UBC head coach Curry Hitchborn joins us now from the West Coast. Curry, thanks for joining us. A busy couple weeks for you. You got married and now you've won a national championship. Are you ready to slide back into everyday life just yet? Uh, I am, but coaching rugby out here and the amount of teams that I coach, my everyday life is being on a field somewhere doing something. <laughs> never, never never, a dull moment for you. Uh, so the Thunderbirds defeating Queensgales 21-10 in the final to win a second consecutive men's university national championship. Queens were actually up 7-3 to three at halftime. Was there any doubt in your mind your team would pull through in that second half? Uh, a really difficult question. Um, we knew nothing about Queens going into it outside of some of the athletes they'd had. A lot of those kids come from really excellent programs. And then you simply look at the record. Dave Butcher had amassed um, 22-0 and 0 heading into this. There's a lot of hearsay around, you know, who has the better programs and, you know, which province is the best. And <clears throat> I think that Queens came out and proved, you know, fairly emphatically that you don't need to leave your province and you don't need to leave your own backyard to play really high-level rugby. They were full value. We didn't touch the ball in the first 30. Um, but that's that's happened to us before time and time again. Uh, when we played the University of British Columbia Old Boy Ravens earlier this year, featuring a bunch of our grads and some very, very top play- play players, also very well coached, we played defense for 32 minutes and wound up winning that one. So we'd, we'd been in that situation before. Um, our guys had recognized that it didn't look, Queens did not look like they'd been under that form of sustained pressure for for that long, probably ever in their season. And for us, we we do a lot of that. So were there nerves? There's always nerves, man. Uh, was there any doubt? Well, you never want to doubt the guys on the field. Um, it's just a game. It could have gone either way, but we controlled it. We could control very well. We didn't let the lack of possession get to us, and we made some fairly intelligent decisions just as we started to turn on, which is around the probably 38th minute, close to the 40th minute. Um, the games were 60 minutes long, so I would have liked to definitely play a full game there to get a full level of where we're at, especially with the opportunity to see that many athletes who hopefully play test rugby one day on display looking at that obviously you're 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 seeing teams as you said that you've never seen before Uh, what what was your overall impression of the the standard of play as a whole for for the tournament did you feel uh it was better than a year ago did did any of the results surprise you at all we have the limited ability to actually know what we're going against i mean we can we can base things on the relative strength of competitions and i think that's really what the question is is it's not it's not the teams per se. Every single one of those teams brought their best and their brightest and they deserve to be there. You could look around there and you could see where some of those guys are really, really going places as long as they stick with it. It's just a matter of finding that right system. Was the gameplay better? Um, it was, it was certainly different. You know, I mean, we opened up last year's tournament against a remarkably physical Concordia side. Um, speaking to John Lavery before the tournament uh, this year, you know, we were talking about, there was a large amount of trepidation on our part having to face that that buzzsaw again. Uh, this year, I found them to be less physical, but a much better rugby team, if that makes sense. They had way better structure than they had the previous year. 
Uh, there was way cleaner lines of communication. You could tell that everybody knew where they needed to be. Uh, the previous year, it was we were hanging on for dear life, and the score was not reflective. The Guelph team, uh, certainly not as strong as last year's, but again, I think you know a lot of people get carried away with the strength of teams in university rugby. You know, people will say things like Uvic lost to Queens and things like that. We only have these guys for four or five years, and you're only as good as you recruit. And, you know, you can recruit a ready-made rugby player, but how that person fits into a system, where they come back from, that leads a lot into it. You know, we brought a, a team of 26, and I would say that, you know, this is definitely one of our more eclectic groups we've had in year, as opposed to years gone by. Simply looking at those results, I think, isn't the, the best marker, per se, on the relative strength of a team. It just, again, I think comes down to the systems in which we're currently playing in. Um, obviously, very surprised to see Queens lose not Queens, um, Uvic lose to Queens. But like I said, Queens was an excellent, excellent rugby team. Queens was very, very good. And I think um, they came out. A lot of mistakes both ways. You know, I watched that opening. I watched that entire game, actually, Uvic and Queens. And it was plain to see that nerves were a factor. Um, I've not seen Queens play, or Uvic, I've not seen Uvic play like that in a number of years. And I think they were shocked by what, what Queens had brought to the table. Um, you know, having said that Queens did, or Ubik did an excellent job of rounding that corner and putting on an excellent performance against a very good Concordia side. Was I surprised by the results? Yeah. You just, you just don't know what you're going to expect going in. So you just have to take it a game at a time and you have to just be aware of what you can do. I think we watched probably 10 to 15 minutes of footage on Queens you, you can't you can't focus on that. You have to focus on what you can control, based on what you have. You mentioned uh, Uvic's loss to Queens. Obviously, you see uh, Uvic a lot there. Your you know your big rivals, I guess, for uh, time immemorial. For, for a long time, it was Uvic who were kind of on top of the world, so to speak. And now it seems to be uh, very much in UBC's favor. So, I mean, what's the secret? Why is UBC churning out all these winners suddenly? Let's add, let's add a ton of salt to that one. Um, we rate our relative strength against UVic through an annual competition known as the White Men Boot. It's an incredibly, incredibly useful game series that's highlighted numerous current and past UBC and UVic alumnus throughout the years. It's an aggregate total. So we've had the hot hand for the last, coming into our sixth year. This is my first year as a head coach, well, solo head coach. UVic had won the, the white man boot for 13 years in a row. So while we're certainly coming around that corner, we're almost at halfway with the legacy that they've created and, you know, the level of control they've had over our competition. A large part of why I believe Ubik has been so strong in the past has certainly been the idea that in order to play national level rugby, you have to move to Vancouver Island. There is a level of understanding now amongst people in key development areas within our NSO that are beginning to recognize fully the value of not only having a degree, but being in a system in which you do get, you know, proper weightlifting, proper training. Um, I'd say proper coaching, but I just put cones out. We're largely player led. And I think that has certainly helped towards it. Uh, look at some of the guys we've had gone past in the last couple of years, Theo Souter, Andrew Coe, Ben Lesage, Brock Stoller, Nakai Penny. I mean, we've got, we've pushed a lot out there and that's not even going through the age grade representation as well. We've done fairly well on that marker also. Um, 
I think it's just, to be completely frank with you, Brian, I think it's just the current form. Um, you know, Doug Tate, Rick Fairley do an excellent job out there. They've got a lot of support from their community. They've got a lot of support from their local rugby clubs as well. And it shows, um, you know, when I do recruitment, I'm very cognizant of the fact that there is a deep-seated loyalty to that island and the people that went through those systems over there, be it the northern part of the island or the southern part of the island, certainly feel a very, very, very important connection to not only representing their hometown on an academic level, but representing their hometown and rugby community on the field as well. And UVic does a really good job of putting that out. UBC is a completely different animal, Brian. I mean, there's like 80,000 people out there. You can, you can go to elementary school at UBC, high school, attend university. You could have been born out there, man. It's its its, it's, its own city. Um, harnessing that, bringing that level of infrastructure, that level of high, high, high volume interdisciplinary studies and athletics to the fore in a program that's often over, not a program, but a sport that's often overlooked in this country is certainly very, very challenging. But once you get it right, it's, you're off to the, you're off to the races. It's just a simple issue of paying attention to what you've got in front of you, what you have around you, and most importantly, who's in behind that, pushing it to move forward. You know, we're, we're seeing more and more kids put their hands up, you know, for self-selection for universities. We're seeing more and more kids engage in conversations about the monetization of rugby before it becomes youth sport. And hopefully it does become youth sport one day. We're seeing a lot of parents ask very considered questions which are academic based first, um, you know, and university is not for everybody. We, you know, we're not going to get them all any more than I want them all. Right. Like I, I probably turn 10 to 15 kids away a year because they want to come to UBC just to play rugby. If you don't want to go to school at UBC, don't, don't even apply. If you want to come just to play rugby, don't, you know, don't apply at all. You can't, you can't get by like that. So di- different approaches. Um, long story short, Ubix time will come. They're they're by no means out. You know, they're by no means. And they usually turn on in the second half. So anytime we can get a W off those guys is is a big moment for us. A lot to digest in there. I want to just touch on one of those those points to start. I had the privilege to do commentary for the the women's U Sports finals uh, out in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. You know, watching that up close, seeing not only the amount of work that goes into the logistics, all the behind the scenes stuff, uh, but also the recognition that it gets from Rugby Canada. Oh. You know, Sandro Fiorino was there. All the national select- selectors were there in person. Uh, we've already seen the significant ap- asp- impact, rather, that the uh, uh, the women's tournament has had on that national program. Can this men's tournament find a similar place in the in the men's competition pathway? And and do- does it require U Sports status to get there? It absolutely has to get to that stage. It must. We're we're so far past the point of is this something we should be doing? Is there value to this? It's. I mean, I could talk ad nauseum about the benefits of this level of competition um you know whether it has u-sport designation or not well if it's got u-sport designation then you move out of a privately funded model um and it certainly levels the playing field you know some schools ourselves included are able to incentivize athletes that you know exhibit financial need um or get it on academic merits as well and it it's such an important avenue to put those people on display because more often than not, we get really carried away with, you know, well, who's running the program or, you know, where are they located? And we really look beyond the people that are actually playing the sport, which are those guys on the field day in, day out. I I strongly believe that if we don't carry on with this and we rely on what we've been doing, we've no one to blame but ourselves. 
should repeat poor performances occur? You know, it's, it, it's, it's such obvious low hanging fruit. And then the trickle down effect that has into sec secondary or high schools is enormous. I mean, you've got kids out there that just want to be playing the sport they love and they want to go to school. Some kids, you know, I can't speak for all of them. And to be able to put them in a position where they can get evaluated, you're saving a lot of people travel money, putting them in a position where they can compete. They can now rate themselves against their peers. And then getting all of us university, university coaches in the same area, that same arena of conflict, to be in a position in which we can share ideas, talk, and most importantly, just weigh ourselves against our peers. You know, we don't, I don't get a lot of coach development in this country, and a lot of us don't. Um, so to go out there and see what the other guy is doing and talk and the rest of it, it's just, it's so, so, so important on so many different levels. If we were to turn this into a league structure, I firmly believe a number of things would change. Number one, which I believe is the most important issue in Rugby Canada right now, is referee development. So we would get better referees, not saying the referees we have are garbage, but we would get more engagement. We'd see more people put their hands up, which means more referees and a wider base for our, you know, our officials in their development roles to draw from. Um, the other incentive would certainly be that we're all playing by the same rules. We're all under the same umbrella, and I think that a streamlined, cohesive league structure supported by the universities is of the utmost importance. Um, I, I can't speak enough about it. I'm not denigrating any form of competition that I currently compete in, but this has a completely different appeal to it for the people moving through. It's, you know, I hate to say it, but rugby isn't like it used to be when I was going through high school or when I was coming back from university after I'd promptly dropped out of it and was able to slap on the boots, you know, and do my thing. And we, we rely heavily on our clubs. We rely heavily on our high schools. We rely heavily on our regional development centers. And we rely heavily on, you know, any number of other outlets to be able to take those kids and the best and brightest of, or the brightest of those kids, because everybody develops at a later age and put them in an area in which they can compete against their peers. And they can be in those really organized systems, you're only going to see benefit. There's not a single detriment I can see to any of this outside of the fact that it takes a ton of money and money, as you know, doesn't grow on trees. Right. And I mean, you've kind of already touched upon this, but you know, once upon a time, Canada had uh, the, the CCSD or the Pacific pride program. Um, you've already mentioned, you know, some of your players, Ben Lesage and, and Theo Souter, you know, not only started, but played key roles for Canada in the, in the repishage. And you've had, you know, Stoller mm -hmm. and you've had Jordan Sandover best getting capped this year. Andrew Coe, obviously with the sevens headed to Dubai this weekend, you know, uh, is, is it kind of, uh, imperative that, that rugby Canada finds a greater connection with these university programs and, and, and uses them as kind of, you know, almost, almost like Pacific pride programs across the country as, as informal centers for regional development. Rugby Canada lately uh, has certainly recognized the added benefit. It's cost share. I mean, think about how much money gets saved. You don't have to house these extra guys. You don't have to give them carding. You don't have to pay for their transportation to and from. The issue has always been one of trust, and I completely understand that. You know, you work for an NSO, you have to be conscious at all times of your employment status. You have to be conscious of at all times, you know, the shifting, the way, the way those government organizations shift. I mean, there's, there's so much added pressure up there. Those guys have to do so many things that if somebody else is going to help shoulder that load, someone else is going to help ease that burden, as long as it's towards a common goal, I mean, you'd be cutting your nose off to spite your face to not recognize it. 
Rugby Canada's engagement on this piece, you know, you get guys like Paul Henry Van Peel, um, you know, you get Nathan Abdelnour, you've got the Canadian Rugby Foundation, which are just like Mark Wyatt, you know, um, Mike Holmes, you need, I'm, I'm missing way more, but, you know, those are names that come to mind because they're in that immediate sense, supporting this tournament alongside Rugby Canada. Uh, in a perfect world, Brian, we have a university league with a university championship and which I think is on equal, if not more important footing, because, you know, you, you're not going to get all these kids into these university systems, is the Pacific Pride, the CCSD. Getting rid of that was pure madness. Um, I truly well, well and hope that that is coming back. And I can tell you right now from a UBC standpoint, if we can help aid that in any way, shape, or form, like our hands are up, man. We are, we are gunning for that. Because you're going to get that guy who doesn't want to go to university. You know, university is not for everybody. A lot of, you know, a lot of guys choose a different career path. A lot of guys choose a different school path or career path later in life. By having the CCSD in place, we're, we're getting everything we can. You know, it's like you live on the East Coast. You wouldn't ever drop a net in fish if you had a bunch of holes in it, would you? <laughs> you, know, you know, we got we to gotta, we gotta sew those holes up and we've got to tighten her. We've got to move forward, you know, with, with that common goal. And we're doing that. And these things take time and money. But I believe right now at this current state of affairs with rugby in this country, you know, thank Christ we qualified for the Rugby World Cup. You know, look at our women's program. I mean, that, that game against Scotland, I don't know if you saw that. Like, we're, we're doing some great things. But the hardest thing to do is do consistently great things, even consistently good things, you know. And I'd take complete instead of perfect any day of the week. And I think we're building towards being complete. I, I, I well and truly do. Uh, you know, we, we've seen kind of uh, Kingsley Jones and, and the, the senior men's staff kind of move away from looking at the, the CDI Premier League and, and pretty much club rugby as a whole. They don't really look at club rugby anymore. Uh, can you give us an idea of what, you know, the difference is for, for your team in an average week uh, during the season versus an average club size as far as preparation and all the kinds of things that they, they go through? Why, why it's advantageous, the, uh, this, uh, the university program and, and you know, and, and I guess specifically UBC? If you look at what UBC brings to the table, I can only speak to UBC. I've, I've not been a part of any other university programs. But what UBC supplies our athletes with is, you know, the constant, constant, constant ability to test themselves, not just on a field, which is very important because, you know, without that, I wouldn't have a J-O-B, but they're in a constant point in which they have to compete in a classroom, they have to compete in a gym, and they have to compete during a training. At a rugby club, having, you know, I, I cut my teeth coaching club rugby, it's, it's, it's where I got started. I worked out, I started as a men's third division coach at Capilano Rugby Club as an assistant. I worked my way up to head coach of men's third division. <laughs> and the following year, I was brought on to be the men's first division head coach. And I was Tom Larish's forwards coach the year we got relegated. And then the senior came back and won a Roundsfell Cup. Club rugby is incredibly important. The issue is that it's not what it used to be, and that is due to a lack of engagement from many, many different areas. We've noticed a massive drop-off of kids playing age-grade club rugby, and a lot of guys that graduate from universities simply put, don't go back. I believe, speaking from a UBC standpoint, is that the UBC motto, excel, engage, inspire, those aren't just three really easy words, you know, and, and our personal motto is, you know, great rugby, great education. It, 
those aren't just fun buzzwords to say you, you are in a position which you have to excel. Um, you're being constantly engaged negatively or positively. And the level of success these guys can encounter, be it in a classroom, through, in their community, through job placement, you know, through any number of things, it's easy to garner that level of inspiration. Couple that with the fact that we do play really good rugby and you come out the back end with a great education, a wide alumni base, able to put you in places where you can potentially get interviews for jobs, write letters of recommendation. To go from that to a more community-based model is a bit of a shock for some people, but club rugby didn't always used to be that. Now, I think that discounting our domestic competition is not necessarily the most intelligent decision in a few areas, but based on how, how good the level of play is, I can completely understand where they're coming from. Me personally, if I had all the money in the world, I would just turn right back around, give every club X amount of millions of dollars and say, here you go, let's get at it. But I don't have that kind of money. You're also the, uh, obviously you coach several age grades, provincial sides as well, uh, but you're also the director of rugby at North Star Academy. Where, where does that fit in the development puzzle? So I've been a youth rugby coach for about 13 years. And I had the, you know, the amazing honor of working through the Capilota Rugby Club to get my start there. And I've noticed over the years, our numbers declining, our numbers declining, our numbers declining, and our numbers declining. Now, we were still winning, and as long as you're winning, well, then there's not a problem, right? But there is a problem because we were winning with less and less guys every year. Then I looked around the local high schools. Now, I volunteer coach at the high school I went to. Hands were secondary. Go Royals. And I've noticed even more kids wanting more out of rugby. Our systems that we currently have in place, just club rugby, two nights a week, a lot of kids want more than that, or some kids just don't want to do that. You know, um, you've got high-level basketball, high-level soccer, high-level hockey, high-level baseball, and there's all these academies, and academy is a really gross word. It's a really, really, really disgusting word for all sorts of purposes. It ranks up there with elite, you know, like I have no time for that kind of stuff either. This is an academy in the sense that it's actually curriculum-based. So on the North Shore of Vancouver, you have West Vancouver and North Vancouver, you go Lions Bay, all the way up to Deep Cove, any kid at any high school, boy or girl, regardless of skill level, can elect to not take PE at their school, and they can come to my rugby class, and we do any number of things. And that's in a school's calendar year out here. So where does that fit into UBC? Well, the two are completely separate. There is absolutely zero link. I just happen to do one and do the other. Where does that fit into the overall scheme? of development of rugby in this country. I'm not entirely certain yet, but I started with nine kids. Then I went to 12 kids. Then I went right up to 32 this year. I've only been running it for three years. Is it the way forward? I don't know, man. I don't have a crystal ball, but I really, I just, to be completely frank with you, I got fed up with waiting around for things to improve. And I don't believe that we're in a position with rugby in this country where we can be waiting you know, sitting on our hands, watching things, you know, everybody's got an opinion, especially on game day, you know, on Saturday, everybody has a, has a really good idea as to how we're going to fix things, you know, and what it's going to take. And then Sunday rolls around and a little bit foggier than Monday, everybody goes back to work. You know, I just figured if I'm going to dedicate my life to this and if I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to really do the best I possibly can, then I can't afford to wait. I pissed a lot of people off, Brian, locally, provincially, nationally. I mean, 
North Star, we were these amazing boogeymen for a while. And it's myself and a couple of dads that pitched an idea to a school board to get more kids playing rugby. Um, you know, we'd run sevens tournaments in the past, but, you know, those those seem to be dying off in our neck of the woods. Um, I believe it's an important step because I'm not just teaching rugby either. I'm teaching the importance of being the best person you can be, being the best citizen of your sport you can be, being an adequate representative, not only of your sport, but your community and your school at all times. You know, and I've got kids out there that have never picked up a rugby ball right down to kids. I mean, I've got two kids that came out of the London Wasps Academy and they moved to Canada. I've got another kid who's going to go back and play national age grade rugby for Wales. And you smatter those in with kids that are just picking a sport up. It's a really unique something. But for me, it is what rugby is at its very core, which truly is a sport for everybody. And if I can deliver a sport for everybody under the roof of human advancement, while at the same time, the importance of education and accountability, well, then by basic human nature, I have no choice but to do that. You know, I don't want to sit around and cast aspersions or wait for things to change. I'm not that kind of guy. If there's something that needs improving, you get after it. You worked with the Seattle Seawolves in uh, Major League Rugby over the last year. Basically, I mean, you had a fancy title, but basically you were in charge of player recruitment for the inaugural season. Uh, How personally satisfying was it to see, you know, Phil Mack, Ray Barkwell, Cam Polson, etc., Nakai Penny, uh, lifting that enormous shield after winning the title? How rewarding was it or how relieving was it? (laughs) (laughs) A little of both. Maybe just answered it right there. Brian, I've, I've been asked to do a job um, based on my my knowledge and understanding of domestic rugby in the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, and there were some people there that took a gamble on me. I was not very qualified in terms of professional sport experience, but, you know, one, one thing I am good at is I'm good at people. I, I understand people and, and I do understand our game. I may not understand it on a technical level that, you know, a lot of my, a lot of international or national level coaches do, but I've got a firm enough grasp where, you know, if, you, if you're not tackling, if you're not winning your own ball, and if you can't catch a ball, you're not going to make a team. You know, and if you can sift through the hype and you can move beyond the perceived profile of an athlete, be it, you know, their social media presence or a fun story, and you can actually get right down to the basics. Is this guy going to do a job? You go with that guy. How rewarding was it to see those guys win? It was immensely rewarding, Brian. It's a team sport. I was a part of that team. You know, I hired the majority of those guys, there were some previous signees before I'd been signed on. And, you know, I did all of them play some did all of them work out. I doubt it. Did they win? Absolutely. And that's what I got hired to do was build a winning team. Personally, very gratifying on a more realistic and human level. I'm incredibly proud of those guys, man. I mean, we lost our head coach beginning of the year. Phil Mack put his hand up, you know, and Phil is I me mean, talk about, talk about remarkable men. You get a guy like Phil in there. Well, you know, Phil doesn't have an ego. Phil doesn't stick his chin up to catch the rain. Phil just does his job. And, you know, having guys like that in there, having guys like Cam Polson in there, guys like Ray Barkwell, you know, guys that you, you know, some, you know, quite well personally and others, you know, you know, as just a, as a face in a crowd, it was immensely rewarding. The most rewarding part of all of it was seeing those guys and the smiles on their faces at the very end, lift up that enormous shield. My God, they've got to get something better. And uh, struggle, struggle, struggle under the weight of that thing with a big old smile on their dial, just to see that, see people reach their potential. Well, that's that's why that's why I'm involved in rugby. It's it's what I do. I, you know, I, I really, really enjoy that process. 
They really do have to rethink that if a guy like Cam Polson can't even <laughs> live that as himself. Uh, so, uh, obviously, Toronto's entering Major League Rugby in this, yeah. this coming season. Uh, you were named yeah. in a press release of sorts almost a year ago as part of Carl Harrison's uh, Vancouver bid. Now, we really haven't heard yeah. anything since. Where, where does that stand right now? Is that still alive at all? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, we, we'd invested in Seattle Seawolves in the first season. You know, we put together and contracted that team. That insider's view of MLR, you know, it, it gave us the opportunity of preparing ourselves to better create a Vancouver franchise. And, you know, we're still looking at that 2020 season. It's not about rushing in, though, Brian. It, you know, it's about getting it right. So, you know, what we do succeeds and best serves our rugby community and fans in Vancouver and in BC, you know, and, and in Canada. I mean, to have parallel teams on either side, I mean, that's such a marketable marketable rivalry um you know we were the first canadians into mlr with our seattle involvement you know we're not wallflowers you know we're not, you know we're serious and and we're still taking a serious look at it um there were other competing bids there was some really nasty stuff going on and my entire thing is is i don't really give a shit who delivers it brian i don't it just needs to be here and we put our hands up said we'd do it and a lot of people took that very very personally you know people that i'd worked with people that I was working for at the time, you know, there were some really, really, really nasty, nasty things said, um, some very bizarre lobbying and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it reminds you of the age old saying, you never underestimate rugby's ability to get in the way of rugby. Because uh, I mean, if, if anybody's going to ruin things for rugby, it's people involved in it. And, you know, that, that is since cooled. I've not heard of other, any other potential bids, but Hey, if you're listening and you want to help shoulder the cost, I'm your guy. Uh, you know, this costs a lot of money and, I'd much rather do this with a bunch of people than myself and a couple other dudes. Cause having seen the amount of work that went into MLR season one and the returns therein, whew, this is a slog. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a, certainly a, a long-term commitment rather than a, a short one. You know, Vancouver certainly seems to be a preferred destination. Obviously you mentioned that, that rivalry, particularly with Seattle, Toronto's going to have, you know, yep. New York, Boston, et cetera, over there, you know, so it seems like, it seems like it's inevitable that, that a professional team is going to be coming to Vancouver. Do you, do you think we will see one in the next, you know, within three years, so to speak? Brian, you ever watched a sporting event in Vancouver? <laughs> I have. I have, actually. The, okay, what was your take on it? Canada Sevens is a fantastic event. Right. So you got the Canada Sevens, a two-day tournament in which, you know, everybody shows up and they really, really enjoy themselves. Do you think that's sustainable over the over a season, <sighs> that level of engagement? Uh, I would I would like to think uh, at least partially. Sure. I mean, you simply put, call up Arthur Griffiths from the Vancouver Grizzlies. I'm sure he's got plenty to say on it as well. Vancouver is a difficult, difficult area to get bums in seats. Vancouver is. There are many places in British Columbia that you would more than likely sell games out. There's a lot of things that go into that. There's a lot of things that look into those venues. There's a lot of things that you have to take into account before you even suggest moving it beyond. But, you know, I mean, you've got the... All the teams with the team names, you've got the Seattle Seawolves. Well, those guys don't play in Seattle necessarily. So how you make that work and, you know, and, and, and where that comes, where that comes from is that that's one of the biggest hurdles you can face. Is it an inevitability? God, I hope so, man. I really hope that professional rugby in Vancouver is inevitable. You know, I'm, I'm in a position right now where through high school, through youth club, through provincial age grade, through university, 
I am developing reams of athletes and I want to send them somewhere. I want them to go on and I want them to play rugby at their highest level. And if their highest level is MLR, sweet. If their highest level is men's premiership club rugby, awesome. Great. You know, we've got a number of guys that will go on to play professional rugby in Europe. Some of them have already been contacted upon graduation of this season. If I can get those guys going there and then the guys in behind, instead of moving sideways from university, even a step up, oh, you know, like if, if I were a guy in the MLR and I knew my history and I was short on second rows, front rows, nines, tens, and twelves, I would be calling Curry Hitchborn ASAP. I've got a bunch of guys with nowhere to go. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty comprehensive. And I've taken up a lot of your time already and you've given us some great answers. I got to give you a couple softballs before you go, though. Sure, uh, Souter, Lesage, Sandover, Best Dollar, these guys are all backs. Who's the next UBC yes. forward to play for Canada? Our current type five. I firmly believe that our current type five with a couple others will certainly play at least Canada A. Of that, I would give, I'm going to say three. If they, if they continue playing, if they're kept engaged, um, I can see them playing for it. We, we've had some very, very excellent athletes come through that are actually, we're, you know, Chris Taylor, uh, Canada or Ireland U20 prop, current forwards coach out of the UBC old boy Ravens. He's the best tight end prop I've ever worked with in my entire life. And he qualifies for Canada. He's chosen not to play, but he would be an easy mark. Um, you know, I'd like to see Nakai Penny get a sniff at a higher level. I think he's more than capable. Um, you know, and, and then you look at Clint Lemkis, prime example. Clint Lemkis is a year or a bit out of eligibility. I can see him coming. Now, do we develop him? No, that guy came ready made. Um, there are guys in there that have played Canada U18, Canada U19, Canada U20, guys like Michael Smith, Callie Martinez, Liam Dahl, Owen Rattan, Connor Sampson, Isaac Kelly. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I know in the next five or six years, we're going to see these guys become mainstays in something not, that's not just club rugby, but above and beyond representing their clubs and their school, you know, their alma mater at a higher level. There's no doubt in my mind. Let's not take anything away from Ben LeSage, Andrew Coe, Jordan Sandoverbest, or Ted. Those guys are freaks. I mean, those guys are, they're absolute freaks. Jordan Sandoverbest is one of the best nines in the country. Andrew Coe is either-handed as a spider and capable at 15s and 7s. Theo Sauter will not only make you miss, but he'll cut you in half. And Ben LeSage, the guy's like a Swiss watch. I mean, he's, you know, you're reminded of the... Um, Bum Phillips, one of my one of my favorite favorite NFL coaches, you know. Bum did the um, New Orleans Saints. He actually actually coined the the who dat saying, you know, Wade Phillips is a boy. Anyway, he says the only discipline that lasts the longest is self discipline, and Ben is Ben is the very epitome of self discipline and life balance. He is a remarkable remarkable man, and I, it's very hard to compare anybody to any one of those guys, let alone guys that play in different positions. Um, I'm just making certain that the guys we, are, we do have coming through in those areas are adaptive and up-to-date and more than anything else, fit and not prone to injury. You know, that is the biggest part. You know, you asked previously, why is UBC so much different? I mean, these guys, they train. We only train two days a week. They're in the gym three days a week. They get their physio looked after. You know, they get, they get nutrition information. They get, you know, mental health help as well you know we want to make sure that these athletes are supported in the best way they possibly can so when it comes time to represent their country they're in a position to do so not just you know as a 15 20 minute guy over the course of five games but a consistent starter and contributor to their sport and their country so 
Are there forwards coming through? Absolutely. Just need a little bit more time, Brian. I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. <laughs> it certainly sounds like, all right, last one. So sure. age grade, university, whatever level, all these players that you, you've coached along the way, if you had to pick one of these players to be on Jeopardy, who would it be? Ooh, wow. I'm going to go kid named Ben Stuthers, who I had the pleasure of coaching regionally in club um, and done some clinics for while he was in high school. He's currently one of our trainers and still suits up for us. He plays on our third division team. And Ben is the smartest man I know. He, it's, it, it doesn't even make sense. He's like a human calculator. Um, very well read, very, very intelligent, very well spoken, and completely and totally switched on. So the guy I'd want to see on Jeopardy, Dr. Bennett Stuthers. <laughs> All right, maybe a, maybe a future Canada analyst or something like that. All right, thanks again for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your time, Curry. Congrats again on your victories on and off the field, and we look forward to following the continuing chronicles of your rugby adventure. Well, thanks, Brian. And just, you know, on behalf of us at UBC, and, you know, I think I can speak for a lot of people within rugby here in North America, I really appreciate the job you do. Your reporting is comprehensive, well-informed, highly considered, and always without rancor. There's never a bias anywhere. It's just the facts. And, you know, facts are dry, and you're kind of dry yourself, so how you make it so entertaining is beyond me. So <laughs> thanks so much, Brian. I really enjoyed being on here, buddy, and we'll chat soon. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> you bet, bud. Take care. Curry Hitchborn, uh, head coach of the UBC Thunderbirds and a man of many rugby hats. Uh, you can find him at Twitter. On uh, at Curry Hitchborn, pretty easy to find. Go ahead and, and check out his wedding photo. If nothing else, is pretty much the greatest thing ever. That's it for this week. We've talked about it a lot. We've talked about enough. I'm getting out of here. I'm Brian Ray. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your rugby weekend. Lots of sevens in the go, and maybe a little uh, Major League Rugby. New York versus Boston, first time ever, is streaming live. Check it out. See you later.